Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 9. On Sunday evenings and Wednesday evenings, we spend some time in prayer um, for different people in our congregation and in our community um, who are going through different health issues and, and different uh, struggles in their world. And this morning, uh, this past couple of weeks, we've been praying for a longtime pastor here in the Piedmont community, Mr. Bobby Kirk. And, um, I got a, uh, Bobby had a surgery on Tuesday, and he had cancer in his voice box, and they took Bobby's voice box out. They removed all the cancer. He will have to have one more surgery, but I got a text message from his daughter, Tammy Morrow, while I was in Sunday school, and she wanted me to thank our church for the prayers that we have prayed for her dad, and to say that he is recovering well, that he's getting stronger every day and that if he can pass a swallowing test today, he'll be able to come home tomorrow. So please continue to remember uh, Bobby Kirk. He has been a um, great ambassador for the Lord Jesus Christ in this area for many, many years, led a lot of souls to Jesus, and has been a mentor to me in my ministry. So uh, continue to pray for that family. Um, this morning... A title of the sermon is, What Should the Normal Life of a Christian Be? It comes from Acts chapter 9 and 31. And if you talk to someone who has never attended church, you talk to someone who doesn't know anything about faith in Jesus Christ, and they've just observed us from outside, and you ask them what would they think that the life of a Christian would be like? What do, what, what do you think some of their responses might be? I thought that some people might say, I can remember when I was a lost person and the people that I were around, and if you talked about church, you talked about going and, and living a Christian life, they would have said, I don't want to live a boring life like that. You ever had anybody tell you that the Christian life is probably boring? I think it's anything but. But I read it, it led me to an article this week uh, as I was studying for this sermon. There is a yearly conference called the Boring Conference, where they find joy in the ordinary. Did you know that there's a conference dedicated to boring stuff? It's called appropriately the Boring Conference. The conference's website claims it's a one-day celebration of the mundane, the ordinary, the obvious, and the overlooked. James Ward, author of Adventures of Stationery and creator of the blog, I Like Boring Things, launched the idea in 2010 in response to the sudden and rather tragic cancellation of the interesting conference. Speakers have addressed the following topics. Sneezing, toast, the sounds made by vending machines, the shipping forecast, barcodes, yellow lines, assorted arcane features of the Yamaha PSR-175 Portatune keyboard, inkjet printers of 1999, ice cream van chimes, how to cook elaborate meals with the equipment found in hotel bedrooms, and similarity between 198 of the world's national anthems. Previous highlights include a talk about electric hand dryers by a man so fascinated by them that he had a, installed a Dyson Airblade in his house, and a speaker who rollerbladed around the hall while reading from a book about the relative weights and densities of different kinds of metal. Sounds pretty boring, right? Actually, the conference has been a sellout hit because it has a serious aim to take subjects often considered trivial and pointless, but then examined more closely, reveal themselves to be deeply fascinating. Uh, the basic idea is that the theme needs to be boring, but the content shouldn't be. So, this morning, 
If you've ever felt bored by my sermon, I can recommend you to the Boring Conference and you might find mine sermons a little bit better. But the aim of the conference is to say that some things are boring when you look at them on the outside, but the content makes them not boring and useful. So the world may look at us from the outside and say, I bet living a Christian life is boring, but we know different. We know that the Christian life is an adventure. It's a journey. It is a wonderful experience that God has, has allowed us to be a part of through the death, burial, and resurrection of His Son, Jesus Christ. And we know that we are headed to a place that will be anything but boring, and that is our home in heaven. So as we go about our lives and as we live our lives, live our lives in such a way and in such a spiritual uh, sense that the world knows that being a Christian is the most awesome thing in the world and there's nothing boring about it. So in Acts chapter 9, verse 31, Luke gives us a description of the first century churches having peace. <clears throat> Earlier in Acts chapter 9, Saul, who is the great persecutor of the church, has been converted on the road to Damascus and has now become a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the wolf is no longer ravaging the sheep and they are in a time of peace where they had been in a time of turmoil and fear. Many of the disciples had gone back to Jerusalem where the persecution had began uh, sometime earlier, they had gone back to Jerusalem to strengthen the church of Jerusalem again, and from Jerusalem they would go about the city and do preaching tours of the city, and from the city of Jerusalem they would leave there and do preaching tours in Samaria and Judea. So they have a, a liberty and a freedom now that they haven't known in some time, and they're taking advantage of it. One result of the enjoyment of this peace after the persecution was the fact that they were able to go to these churches and continue to build them up spiritually, to edify them, the churches as a whole, and the individual believers who were members of those churches. So verse number 31 here is a good guide for what the normal Christian life should be. Let's read that verse together here this morning. <coughs> So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up or being edified. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So this is a good guide for what the normal Christian life should look like. Luke says that the early church was walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Let's unpack that for a few minutes here this morning. Let's look at each of those phrases and see what they mean and how they apply to us sitting here in January of 2017. First of all, let's look at the walking in the fear of the Lord. There's a Greek word here that's used 146 times in the New Testament called phobio, phobeo. And it means to fear, reverence, or respect. Fear, reverence, or respect. And it's used 146 times in the New Testament to talk about our relationship with the Lord. It tells us that fear can be a fear is our friend when we look at fear of God. Now I want you to think about this. The majesty and holiness of God cannot do anything but incite fear in man. God's majesty and holiness is perfect. 
Job described it this way in the Old Testament. He said, out of the north comes gold and splendor. God is clothed with awesome majesty. The Almighty, we cannot find Him. He is great in power. Justice and abundant righteousness He will not violate. Therefore men fear Him. He does not regard any who are wise in their own conceit. God, in His, His majesty and holiness, when we begin to think of Him in those terms, and how perfect He is in majesty and in holiness, it dwarfs us, and it, it intimidates us to sometimes to know that we are in a relationship with God who is so perfect. Anything of that magnitude that dwarfs man, by contrast, would incite fear in that same man. Think about this. As a man gazes into a deep canyon, or into limitless stellar space, or across boundless ocean, he senses a feeling of awesome fear. How much more is the effect in the presence of God who is vastly greater than all of these? Think about I, I love to, when we go on vacation in the, in the summer, and we, we go to the beach, and I love to, in the, at night, in the, in the darkness uh, of the sky, I love to sit out on the balcony, and I love to look and to listen to the ocean. And I, I sit there and I look at that ocean and I listen to the, the waves crashing in and I look and my eyes can only see to a certain point. And I see that and I know how incredibly deep and awesome and all the things that are there and all the things that we really don't know that exist there that, that we've never discovered. And as I look at it, I, I look at it and I realize that out there I could get to a certain point and it would be fearful for me. I'm in awe of it, but at a certain point I would get and I would be fearful of it because it's so much greater than I am. And I think about that in, in respect to our relationship with God. God is so infinite and God is so deep and God is so wonderful and God is so holy. God is so righteous and so majestic, so loving so kind, so forgiving. And when I look at all of those things about God and I see how I pale in comparison and I see how wretched I am and how unrighteous I can be, and, and it puts me in a place to where I am in complete awe of God, but it's a fearful reverence that I have for Him. And, and so the people here in this first century church, they're looking at God and they've seen what God can do and they walk in a, the fear of the Lord that is just in awe of what He can do. In Acts chapter 2, 42-47, in the description of that first church in, in Jerusalem, it said everyone who was in Jerusalem was in awe of what God was doing there. The people had this awe of God. It was a reverential fear that they had. David the psalmist meditated on this contrast. He was amazed that God would even think about us. Listen to what he wrote here in the Psalms. He said, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, and the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? God is so great, and he is so powerful, and he is so majestic. Why would he even be mindful of us? Why would he even have us on his mind? But we know through the depth of scriptures that we are on his heart all of the time since the beginning of creation. We know this. And we think about how, how awesome that He is 
and how much in control that he is of everything that we see. Now, I read this illustration this week. And it was, uh, I, I read this, Timothy Keller wrote this. Timothy Keller is the pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Manhattan. And he said that in the early 1970s, he was in a Sunday school class, and a lady did this, his Sunday school teacher did this illustration, and he said it changed his whole life and his perspective on who God, on, on who Jesus really is. And she took up a sheet of paper, and she said, I want you to imagine that this one sheet of paper represents the distance between the earth and the sun. That's 92 million miles between the earth and the sun. So this one sheet of paper, and I did it in bold pink, so you people in the back that are a little bit older can see it. Um, and all the people in the balcony, bold pink there. But 92 million miles is what this one sheet of paper represents, the distance between earth and the sun. Now I want you to think about this. If you took a stack of papers 70 feet high, that would represent the distance between us and the nearest star beyond the sun. A stack of paper 70 feet high, that would represent 70 times 92 million miles would be to the next star closest to us from our own sun. If you took a stack of papers 310 miles high, it would represent the width of the galaxy that we live in called the Milky Way. That's, that's how much paper it would take to give that example. 370 miles high. Now think about that. Jesus Christ not only controls that, the Milky Way, but He controls the whole universe that we don't even know anything about. I read this week that we know about 5% of the universe. The other 95% we know nothing about yet. Yet Jesus Christ holds all of it in His hand and with His breath spoke all of it into existence and with His breath could speak all of it out of existence if it were so His desire. Yet we want to make Jesus our assistant and not give Him complete control of our lives. We should be in such awe of who He is and what He controls and what He has done and who and, and what He can do that we completely, totally surrender every corner of our lives to Him because look at what He's done on a much greater scale. So I'm in awe of Jesus Christ this morning because of what He has done and what He continues to do. So what are you in awe of? What makes you just completely lose your breath in awe of? Because what controls our awe will control our living. What controls your awe will control your living. I give you some verses here on, the, on your uh, worship guide uh, under the fear of the Lord. I want us to turn and look at Galatians chapter 5. Take your Bibles and turn there to Galatians chapter 5 and verse 19. It'll be right before Ephesians and Philippians. Galatians number 5. And, and, and here's, what, here's what I want to point out to you. 
if you are in awe of this world and the world system and how the world lives, then there's a, a passage of Scripture here that, that says, beginning in verse number 19, if we're in all the world, this describes us. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's pretty strong right there, that last statement. It says this, I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And what that's saying is, if you, if you, say, well, you say, well, I'm a Christian, but yeah, I, I participate in something. If you can go on and on and on and on and participate in those things, and it never convicts your heart, then there's something wrong there spiritually. You probably really don't know Christ as your Savior. If you can continue to live that way, and it never convicts you, and you are in awe of those things, and they control your life, there's a spiritual problem there. Actions flowing out of a fallen human nature and its desires are described here. Apart from the transforming work of the Holy Spirit, these are the actions toward which sinful humans instinctively gravitate. We are born into a broken, fallen, sinful world and we are born with a sinful nature and it's like these things are like a magnet that attract us to them. Things such as sexual immorality, um, impurity, sensuality, just about everything that you sit down in front of a television and look out is consumed with sexual immorality, impurity, and sensuality. And, and we're the people, we are the church is as just as guilty of sitting and consuming those things as the world is. Idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife. We look at our world right now and, and we see nothing but strife, jealousy, fits of anger. All these things describe a life that is lived outside of the control of the Holy Spirit. But then there's a flip side to this, and it's living in the awe of God. Look at verses 22 through 24. It says this, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such, against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Here's how the Holy Spirit fights for us. He doesn't just fight in a defensive posture, but He also is on the attack against sin by producing in the Christian the positive attributes of godly character. Every one of these things that we just read here, um, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, every one of these things are, if we read the New Testament Gospels, we see every one of these things evident in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ over and over and over again. And the Holy Spirit wants to produce those things inside of us so that we have a defense against the other things that I just read here. And we have to surrender our lives to the control of the Holy Spirit because He wants to give us new affections. 
He wants to give us new affections in our lives that replace those old things. Listen, I was passionate about sin. I lived in sin. I didn't only live in it, but I was passionate about the sinful life that I lived. When I became a Christian, the Holy Spirit took up residence in my life and began to replace those desires for those things and replace them with the things that look like Jesus Christ. So what are we in awe of this morning? Examine our lives. Did the things of this world put us in awe? Is what we're watching and where we're going and what we're doing, are we in all those things? Are we living the way the world lives or are we allowing the Holy Spirit to produce in us the fruits of the Spirit so that we look like Christ? I love this last part of 24. He says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. It means we've, we take those, that old life and we die to it daily. We kill it every day. It is our intent to kill that old life, to crucify it, and to live and walk in the Spirit the way that we should. The church, listen, this church that we're talking about knew these things. They knew the perfect holiness and righteousness. They knew the unlimited power and knowledge of God. But they also knew the unlimited wrath of God. They knew the unlimited wrath of God because they had witnessed, many of them had witnessed the unlimited wrath of God poured out on Jesus Christ on the cross. You see, Jesus didn't just take the wrath of one of my sins. He took the wrath of every sin that I would ever commit. He took the wrath of the sin of every, the billions of people who would ever live and they were placed on Him. These apostles who are writing these things and who are teaching us about these things saw that wrath poured out on Jesus firsthand. They were there. They were witnesses to what happened. And it put them in awe of the righteousness and holiness of God. They didn't write this just for us to sit down and look at and read and say, wow, that was neat what they wrote there. They wrote it so that the Holy Spirit would penetrate our hearts with it and that we would understand the same thing that we did, although we're 2,000 years removed we would understand the awesomeness, the holiness and righteousness of God, and we would know that because of that, because that was poured out on Jesus at the cross, Romans 8 and verse 1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation to me. I don't have to live in fear of that wrath anymore. There's no condemnation to me. Jesus took all of it. And now because of that, I live in awe. I live in respect and reverence for what He's done. I don't want to live the way the world lives anymore. They understood this. And we should too. This church knew, this, knew firsthand the price that God paid for their redemption. So they're walking in the fear of the Lord and they're also walking in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit had been promised by Jesus as another helper, another comforter. The word in the Greek is paraclete. And it means that it's, it, it, the, the, the verb there is paracleo. It means that the Holy Spirit was going to come and be by our side and be working for us while, while we're here on this earth. He's on, the Holy Spirit is here on my side working on my behalf. Every day. 
Jesus told His disciples, He said, I'm going away. I have to go to the cross. I'm going to Jerusalem. They're going to crucify Me. Three days later, I will be resurrected. But I am going away. And this brought great trouble to the disciples who were listening to this. They didn't want to hear that He was leaving them. But He said, it is to your advantage that I'm leaving because I'm going to send another Comforter, the Holy Spirit, and He will never be taken away from you. He will never leave you. Jesus was here on this earth physically for 33 and a half years. The Holy Spirit has been here permanently uh, over 2,000 years residing here and walking with believers and being beside us, working with us every day. And Jesus said He's never going to leave you. It's a wonderful promise there. And it should comfort us. Look at your worship guide there. I've, I've given you some notes. and You can go back and look at these things later. But turn back to John chapter 14. John chapter 14, verse number 26. These are the things that the Holy Spirit is about in this age that we live in. John chapter 14, verse 26 says this, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in My name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. The Holy Spirit will teach believers all things. This is one of the most important promises that Jesus ever gave because He gave it to those disciples who He was talking to Matthew was among those disciples. John was among those disciples. Peter was among those disciples. Mark would write Peter's account for him. And, and these, these men, Jesus is saying, everything that I have said to you, the Holy Spirit is going to bring it back to your remembrance so that you can write it down and believers for centuries will have it to their benefit. The Holy Spirit gave them the wisdom to do, and, and the knowledge to do that. It may have been John's hand with the pen, but it was the Holy Spirit who was writing the words for John. You understand what I'm saying? He said, I will bring these things back to your remembrance. And just think about that. This is just as important for us now. The Holy Spirit, one of His ministries to us is to teach us the Scriptures. People say to me, well, I just don't understand Scripture. I sit down and read it. Listen, pray and ask the Holy Spirit to guide you in the Scriptures and to teach you as you are reading. Jesus said right here that the Holy Spirit was going to teach us all things. And if you sit, listen, I, I'm sitting under the teaching of an absolute genius right now in a seminary class. Dennis, we used to work with him in New Orleans. He was one of the people you, we used to work with. Now he's my professor. He knows more about Scripture than I, I can ever think to learn. But here's what he said at the beginning of the course. He said, you can't take my word for everything. You better know Scripture. And the way that I don't want to know Scripture is through the Holy Spirit teaching me. Because the Holy Spirit has a vast much more knowledge than any man that I've ever known. And I want the Holy Spirit teaching me Scriptures. Then it says, turn over to John 15, 26. The Holy Spirit will bear witness to Christ. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about Me. The Holy Spirit will bear witness to Christ. I've witnessed to a lot of people in my life. And as I was reading this, 
I was thinking about this. When we bear witness about Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit is working silently and invisibly through our words. Jesus said you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes. I have sat in the living rooms of individuals as I'm sharing the gospel with them. One of them comes to mind, Chris Posey and I were together sharing the gospel with a friend of ours sitting in his living room. And I could absolutely feel the presence of the Holy Spirit there so, so, so much it was almost like I could reach and touch it. And I know that as Chris and I were witnessing to this man, it was it, God took our limited ability and through the Holy Spirit He gave us words to witness to Him. When you witness, the Holy Spirit is there to help you to bear witness to what Christ has done for you. So don't ever be afraid to tell someone about Jesus because know that God the Holy Spirit who lives inside of you will give you what you need to say. He bears witness to Christ. And then the, another thing is He exposes the world's error and brings conviction to sin. Look at John 16 verse 8. Jesus said, speaking of the Holy Spirit, He said, when He comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. See, when the Holy Spirit comes, <coughs> He's going to convict the world of their sin. As you sit through a message as a lost person, as I did many, many times, that conviction that I would feel, that conviction that would compel me that I needed to give my life to Christ, was straight only the Holy Spirit speaking to me and telling me and convicting and pointing out my sin. This verse gives us hope that many who are in the world and currently opposed to Jesus will not be a part of the world forever, but will repent of their sin and follow Jesus. It gives us that hope. That hope that that relative that we're praying, that son or that daughter that we're praying for, that, that grandchild that we're praying for, that friend or that neighbor that we're praying for, it gives us hope that the Holy Spirit is going to expose their sin to them and convict them and they are going to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. It is why it is so important today that in our churches we do biblical expository preaching is the most important thing that we can do in our churches now is to take God's Scripture and to break it down and to explain it and to teach our people doctrine. Because churches sprout up on every corner of America now, and it's, hey, come in here, we're the coolest, we're the most relevant, we've got the best smoke show and the flashing lights and all this, come on in, we'll give you all these things. And nowhere in most of those churches will you find the Word of God being preached and expounded on. And if we ever get to a point that we're being relevant and cool is more important than the Word of God, I hope we close the doors of this church and we sit at home and watch Meet the Press or something. Because that ain't what we're here for. Amen? The Holy Spirit is here to expose the world's error and bring conviction to sin. And, and the Bible tells us in, in Romans that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And I want to hear the Word of God when I come to church. And then finally, it says, then it says He will guide believers in the way of truth. John 16, 13, just a few verses down, says this, When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth, for He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, 
He will speak and He will declare to you the things that are to come. The Holy Spirit is to lead and guide us in our lives every day. You should pray that the Holy Spirit lead and guide your words, your thoughts, and your actions every day. And then finally, in John chapter 16, verse 14, Jesus said that the Holy Spirit's main function is to glorify Him. He will glorify me, for He will take what is mine and declare it to you. Now think about this for just a minute. God the Son, Jesus Christ, left heaven and came to this earth. The Scriptures tell us that He emptied Himself and came to this earth. All throughout Scriptures, God the Son, Jesus Christ, said that He was here to glorify who? The Father. As Jesus is leaving, He says the Holy Spirit is coming and in everything that He does, He will glorify who? He'll glorify Jesus. He'll glorify Jesus. Just as Jesus glorified the Father, now the Holy Spirit glorifies Jesus. It is the Holy Spirit who points us to Jesus. It is the Holy Spirit who convicts us and points us to Jesus in our sin. And as a Christian, it is the Holy Spirit who when we are out of line, who, who points us back to Scripture and back to our life with Jesus. Listen, the Holy Spirit will never do anything that is not intended to glorify Jesus Christ. He is co-equal in the Godhead with Jesus, but here on this earth, He functions to glorify Jesus Christ and everything that He does. Now this same word is rendered in 1 John 2.1. He calls Jesus our advocate. And it is a reference to Jesus' intercessory work for believers. The two comforters, Jesus and the Holy Spirit, can be seen working together and simultaneously. Listen. A lot of people would tell you this, well, this is what the Holy Spirit does, and this is, what the, this is who the Holy Spirit is, and this is what the Holy Spirit is about. I want to tell you that the Holy Spirit will always be in function. He will always be in function and in coordination with, with Jesus Christ. They will always be working together. They are co-equal in the Godhead and they will always be working and functioning together. We use that word paraclete, which means somebody coming beside us and working for us. We look at this and we see that the Holy Spirit is our paraclete here on this earth. He is here with us, working beside us. And Jesus is working for us and in heaven as our paraclete. As Hebrews 7.25 says, He is the one who always lives to intercede for us. They are working together, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit working together for us. So this church understood that, and they understood that they could walk in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. I was at home a couple of weeks ago sick, and I was reading my daily Scripture, and I read that verse, and I highlighted it real big, and I put stars beside it, and I have spent hours since then reading that one verse and trying to understand what walk, how walking in the fear of God and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit go together and what, how this church was living. And listen, it's how we should be living today. It's how each one of us individually as Christians should be living. We should be living in the fear of the Lord in all of God and we should be living in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Listen, I've just listed all these things that the Holy Spirit is doing for you and you should take comfort in that. 
And as a church, if we're living that way and living this verse out as a church, what's going to happen? These last couple words here say that the disciples were multiplied. Multiplied. Now in Acts chapter 2, at the end in verse number 47, the church had just got its act together. They just started meeting and they were, they were functioning together. And at the end of that verse, in verse Acts 2.47, it says that the Lord added daily to the church in Jerusalem. But now in Acts chapter 9, verse 31, it says that God was multiplying disciples. He wasn't just adding disciples, He was multiplying disciples. Now listen to me. We add people. We add people through baptism, through salvation, through membership. We add people. But our prayer should be to multiply. Our, our prayer should be to multiply. Our prayer should be for exponential growth through salvation, through reaching people. Now, in my announcements earlier, I talked about all the opportunities that we have. And... It doesn't have to be right here in this church where it happens. It doesn't have to be in these four walls. It can be outside of here. It can be somewhere in our region. It can be somewhere on a foreign shore. But we are called to multiply disciples. And if we are walking in the fear of the Lord and living in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it can't help but happen. God wants to multiply believers. He wants us continuously to be living this life. You see, just a few verse, just a few chapters before, in Acts chapter 7, Stephen, the first martyr, was taken outside of the city and he was stoned to death. He was the first person to lose his life for the sake of the gospel. His blood was spilled on the ground. But as a result of that, his, he, he, did not, he had not borne witness in vain because the blood of the martyrs was already becoming the seed of the church. I read an article just this morning where the church, the great persecution that is going on against Christians all across Asia, but in the same article it talked about how the church is growing exponentially and more believers are being birthed in Asia than anywhere else on the, in the world right now. But they're under some of the worst persecution. You see, God honors that. And God will honor us for walking in the fear of the Lord and living in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And He will multiply believers here. And we can know what it is like, just as this first century church did, to see that and to be in awe of God and what He's doing. I want to be there, don't you? I want to be a part of that. I want to see that happen in our lifetime and in our midst. And my prayer is that you will take this verse and you will take these notes and you will look at them and you will read them and you will understand what it means to live this life. And this morning, as we've talked so much about the Holy Spirit and about Him pointing us to Jesus, I know that not everyone here in this congregation sitting under my preaching this morning knows Jesus Christ as their Savior. An, a message that ends without an invitation to know Jesus as your Savior was not a sermon at all. 
I want to give you an invitation this morning to come and know Jesus Christ. Jesus, who was born in this earth, born of a virgin, walked and lived a sinless, perfect life, went to a cross at a place called Calvary, suffered and died and bled, shed His blood for your sins, was buried in a tomb, three days later resurrected, witnessed by over 500 individuals, and who ascended to heaven and who now sits at the right hand of God the Father to work on our behalf. God the Holy Spirit is pointing you to Jesus this morning, and now would be the perfect time for you to come and say, I want to be forgiven of my sins. I want to repent, turn away from those sins. And I want to live for Jesus the rest of my life. Micah, if you will, this morning, during this time of invitation, this time of worship, this time of reflection, will you take hold of what has been said? And will you search your heart and your life and see what need, may need to be mended? See what you may need to give to Jesus? Do that this morning. And let's walk in the fear of the Lord and all of God and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit and watch Him bless our church with the multiplication of those who come to know Christ. Father, would You bless this morning? Would You speak this morning through Your Holy Spirit? And would You point us to Jesus? Father, I pray this morning that You would open heaven and you would just reveal to us in our hearts and our minds a life like we've described this morning, a church like we've described this morning. Father, if there are those here this morning who don't know Christ as Savior, I pray that you would bring them here to us today, that they would be believers, and I pray that if there are those who need to follow in baptism, church membership, whatever it is, I pray that they would come today. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand? I'll be here. Seth will be here. We can take Scripture and help you today.